seriously popular. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hello, I'm Natasha Livingston. Royal Correspondent for The Mail on Sunday. Welcome to The Crown, Fact or Fiction. This is the podcast where we put royal experts on the sofa, turn on The Crown and tell you if what you're seeing is how things really happened. I'm joined on this in every episode of The Crown, Fact or Fiction by Robert Hardman, royal biographer and male columnist. Hello, Natasha. We're now steaming on through the series. The sad days of Diana and her death and funeral are behind us. And we are, I think, now entering two very interesting kind of parallel phases in the royal story, which is obviously the rise of the younger members of the family, which we saw last week in that episode, Will's Mania. But let's not forget that the late 90s are a really interesting period because this is when we're in the phase of what was at the time known as Cool Britannia, when a new Labour government were trying to make everything new and young and cool and sexy and forward-looking. And of course, that didn't really sit very well with a 1,000-year-old hereditary monarchy. So I think that's where we're going to go with this episode, because they're calling it Ruritania. What is Ruritania? Do you know? Well, I say I'd not heard of it before, but obviously from my very diligent research, I found that it is technically, it's a, a fictional country, which comes from um, an Anthony Hope novel, Prisoners of Zender. You the said you were aware yeah. of it. Yeah, a great, a great Victorian novel, sort of full of swashbuckling. But yes, Ruritania is a come to mean a slightly ludicrous, self-important little monarchy in the middle of Europe, in the case of the book. It's a pejorative term. If you're trying to talk about the sort of more arcane pointless aspects of the monarchy. Sometimes people say Ruritania. So I think the very use of that word gives us an indication of where the producers of the crown think the monarchy stand in the scale of relevance. Yeah, I foresee more scenes of drizzly rain in Britain, very dark <laughs> Buckingham Palace, sombre expressions. It's fascinating seeing the younger members of the royal family, their fictional lives play out. And that's what's got a lot of attention in the media. But if we're talking kind of storylines that have been controversial, where they've recreated storylines with politicians in the past with John Major, that has caused a lot of criticism. So that will be interesting. Well, let's start watching. And so Coronation Day is upon us for the first time since 1953. The former Queen is understood to be devastated and is unlikely to attend the service. 
It's out with Queen Elizabeth and in with King Tony. Well, we've just seen there a rather fabulously bonkers opening. It starts with a befuddled queen walking down the streets as people run past on their way to a coronation. And the the strains of Zadok the Priest, the great coronation anthem, are rising as we cut to Westminster Abbey. And there on the throne, being crowned, is King Tony. And we're told that Britain has a new royal family, the Labour Party. (laughs) It then reaches a sort of mad crescendo as the choir launches into what's described as the new national anthem and the choir go into the great D-Ream 1997 hit Things Can Only Get Better which was the anthem of Tony Blair's victorious election campaign I remember covering that campaign literally five, ten times a day we would have to hear Things Can Only Get Better (laughs) so just as you're thinking can this episode get any madder, of course it's actually, it's only a dream and the Queen wakes up and then um, things take a more orderly turn, don't they? The Queen looks in total shock as she kind of wakes up in her bed and luckily things do get better for her and God Save the Queen is on the radio and things are kind of back to their normal royal orderly fashion. There's very well-dressed servants who arrive and bring her breakfast. She's served what appears to be a boiled egg with all the newspapers. But then she has a conversation with her aides. The dream has clearly had an impact on her and she's saying people really do seem to love Tony Blair. It's clearly quite unsurprising assessing for the Queen and she starts to ask if there's things that maybe the monarchy can do better and she's speaking to her aides who we understand to be her private secretary Robert Fellows and his deputy Robin Jamberin. They respond by saying the crown doesn't ask existential questions of itself. Is that fair Robert? Well I think it's quite an interesting depiction of the Queen's advisors at the time because yes the senior private secretary was Sir Robert Fellows who was probably a slightly more cautious figure. I mean a very great man in many ways ways, but more sort of reserved. And he's saying, well, I don't really think we should do this sort of thing. And Robin Jambrin, who was his deputy, who was more open to sort of more modern, if you like, business, corporate activities and and, and strategies, saying, well, look, it's just information. And the Queen is of the opinion, well, we ought to start asking these questions of ourselves. So what we're seeing here is the monarchy, albeit slowly, wising up to the fact that it needs to listen to public opinion. I mean, I, I think it always did. I don't think this was suddenly some great aperture by the monarch. I think she always knew that you've got to keep a close eye on what people are feeling. But at this time, let's not forget, the monarchy is in a very low place. Downing Street is absolutely on a roll. And that obviously lends itself to quite an enticing prospect for a scriptwriter. So let's see what happens next. The focus groups you asked for, ma'am, have now been conducted. More than 2,000 subjects over the age of 18 were asked a series of yes or no questions. Asked if the royal family were out of touch with ordinary people, 69% said yes. I do think it's significant that our low numbers come at the same time that we have a prime minister of conspicuous popularity. So then we're transported to some very kind of 70s looking buildings where polling is going on and members of the British public up and down the country are being asked various different questions about the royal family. Are they out of touch? Are they badly advised? And the results come in and they're not good. The royal family are not too keen to receive them. We see them watching this kind of PowerPoint presentation um, in what looks like Buckingham Palace. And yes, they're kind of being rolled out the results at 
Margaret is particularly not very happy about having to listen to pollsters. <laughs> is this the sort of thing that would have been happening at the time? Well, we do know that there was a royal family committee called the Way Ahead Group. We've discussed it previously. And the family would sit around and discuss, you know, what should the monarchy be doing? Where are we going well? Where are we going badly? So it's not beyond the realms. But the idea that they would have been sort of dissecting polling data quite so minutely, I think, is pushing it. I was struck by there was always this recurring call during the 90s, particularly this phase. People kept talking about, we want a more Scandinavian type of monarchy. We want a bicycling monarchy, which was always as a reference to the Scandinavian, particularly the Dutch royal families who would often be photographed riding around on bicycles. And there was this sort of sense, I definitely remember Labour politicians saying, we want this more, quotes, democratic sort of monarchy. Also, around the same time, I actually went to Norway to interview the King of Norway before he came to Britain on a state visit. And I remember saying to him, "Um, we're always hearing about, you know, how we should have a a more Scandinavian-style monarchy, more of a bicycling monarchy like yours, to which he replied, why do you always go on about bicycling monarchies? I haven't been on a bicycle since I was a child. (laughs) Uh, But nonetheless, that was the sense of the moment. Like I said, there was a very clear sense of fuddy-duddy old reactionary monarchy versus new, shiny, millennium-looking, forward-looking, cool Britannia, new Labour. And what's amazing, Natasha, is we haven't even got to the credit yet. Yes, that introduction is seven minutes long, which is yeah a decent amount of time, even for the Crown. And I kind of thought this um, polling scene was potentially as preposterous as the Queen's mad dream, but the timelines jump around a bit in this episode, but I did find an article in the Mail from 2001 where they talk about a secret poll shock that was relayed to the Way Ahead group, and apparently the Royal Family did listen to it in a stony silence. So that element maybe is true. Well, you know, we call this crime fact or fiction. Yes, the details are a bit flaky, but I think overall the sense that the monarchy is keen to understand and appreciate what it should be doing to improve its public poll ratings is broadly true. We hoped never to see war in Central Eastern Europe again. It has consequences for the whole world. Mr Blair was unusually resolute today. Prime Ministers tend to be either domestic or foreign policy focused. Statesman syndrome. Which am I, do you think? A domestic or foreign policy queen? (laughs) To your interest in every part of the British Isles that I think ultimately makes you a domestic queen. Take today's engagement at the Women's Institute. We see world affairs and domestic affairs in parallel here. We see Tony Blair really trying to drum up NATO enthusiasm to take on the Serbs who are committing atrocities in Kosovo. It's proving difficult. He goes to see the Queen to explain why he thinks this is the right thing to do. And they discuss, actually at one point, they're discussing some military tactics. And I think there was a nice little touch over the Queen starts asking Tony Blair about US stealth bombers and she's heard there are problems with their bombing capabilities. And that actually does ring true. I've spoken to a number of politicians who were always surprised at how up to speed she was on military hardware and military tactics. I think that was always one of her strengths. And then we cut back to the palace, don't we? And we see the Queen talking to, again, to Robert Fellows. And she's 
self-reflecting, isn't she, Natasha? Yeah, she might not be dealing with King Tony, but they're definitely dealing with Tony Blair, the statesman. They kind of refer to him as having statesman syndrome. And then they're kind of pondering on what the Queen's strength is. Is is it her position looking at foreign affairs or is she stronger domestically? And she kind of shows, again, that detailed knowledge she has, reading off detail about the president of Malawi and the Fiji elections, and then moves on to her passion for the Women's Institutes. I was doing some digging on this and she actually really did have a strong connection with the Women's Institute and was a member and did speak at their various meetings. Absolutely. I mean, it's nice contrasting what we've got here. We've got a big world crisis going on. Queen very much on top of it, alert to what's happening, but at the same time, this appreciation that actually what really matters is sort of grassroots, you know, it's what the people are thinking. And yes, as you say, she's off to visit the WI, the Women's Institute, which she belonged to since before she was Queen. There are approximately 250,000 members of the Women's Institute in the United Kingdom. Roughly, the population of Hull. Can you imagine a city run and populated entirely by the WI? It would have the tidiest streets in Britain. Everything would run on time. And we would take all the men's jobs. So we've just seen the Queen give a very successful speech to the Women's Institute, which will have a greater significance later in the episode. Uh, we can see all the women kind of laughing in the audience. She speaks about her long personal connection with the Women's Institute and how successful the country would be if it was run by the Institute. Yeah, she always loved the WI, she says in her speech there, which she's written herself. And I think that's broadly true. She did pen a lot of these these sort of remarks herself. And she reflects on the fact she or had been a member of the WI longer than she'd been queen. She did used to attend every January, actually. She'd go to the annual meeting of the Sandringham WI. That one appears to be set in Berkshire. But, you know, overall, the atmosphere, the theme, the feeling is exactly as we see there. I mean, the WI often describes itself as jam and Jerusalem, a lot of jam making, because, of course, it did start, as the Queen notes in her speech, it all began in the First World War as a great national campaign to provide food on Britain's tables. And they often refer to themselves as Jam and Jerusalem. And so they obviously begin their meetings by singing the hymn Jerusalem. And I think what you see there is the Queen absolutely as one with women of you know her generation of that age who remember the war and just really sort of speaking a lot of common sense. What it's saying is, you know, the traditional old ways of doing things have a lot of merit to them. I like them. You like them. She's very much among friends. And that, as you said, Natasha, that I think that's setting up, shall we say, old Britannia very nicely for an upcoming struggle with new Britannia or cool Britannia. Anyway, let's see where we go now. While we meet here in Chicago, terrible things are happening in Europe. NATO's military action is justified. You are the most powerful country in the world. We need you. I gather President Clinton is now considering ground war, which would leave Milosevic and his Serb forces with the option to either fight and face total annihilation or else withdraw. So, the Prime Minister pulled it off. So it seems. So what we've seen there is Tony Blair straddling the world, if you like, great statesman flying across to the US, 
winning over America to his strategy for Kosovo with a long, impassioned speech saying it's the right thing to do and Britain will always be your ally. Then we cut to the palace. We see the Queen looking at the newspaper coverage. Her private secretary, Sir Robert Fellows, scanning some of the US papers, one of them referring to the fact the New York Times has christened Mr. Blair King Tony, which indeed it did. That was in the New York Times. Um, So we're seeing kind of Blair absolutely at the height of his powers, aren't we, Natasha? Yeah, the King Tony reference is quite interesting. I imagine it's what spawned the kind of comical opening scene (laughs) related to the Queen's nightmare. But yes, the New York Times did mention this nickname, but it wasn't a positive one. It was used by critics of Tony Blair amongst NATO members who felt that he was overstepping the mark. An article in the New York Times said European diplomats raised their eyebrows at Blair's behaviour. And while they wouldn't speak on the record, they said it was not the time to criticise a fellow NATO member. They were referring to him as King Tony. So it's interesting, again, yes, that is accurate, but it's spun slightly differently here. (laughs) It was meant in a slightly different way at the time. He's overstepping the mark. Um, And it's slightly references of detail. They had him here, Tony Blair, speaking at the Chicago Business Forum. Um, And actually, it was the Economic Club of Chicago. And the speech was on April 22nd, 1999. And the content of the speech roughly does match up to what he said. So broadly here, this is largely accurate. Well, it was a big speech. It was a big deal. I think it was the first prime ministerial visit by a British PM to Chicago. And it certainly made a huge impact. Yeah, the Daily Mail said, Blair, the history man, sets a new world order. Okay, well, I don't think we can argue with that. And here is Blair, the history man, on his way to meet the history queen. You are, at this moment, by some margin, the most celebrated leader on the world stage, with remarkable instincts. It's no secret that the Crown has not had the best time of it in recent years. And so I can't help but ask, what would you do if you were in charge, if you were in my shoes. If I were king. Yes. For someone who so rarely puts a foot wrong, this seems to be a dangerous loss of judgment. She's asking for advice, Robert. She doesn't need to take it. But who is she asking? The prime minister. An avowed reformer and modernizer. Her chief advisor. I'm her chief advisor. Actually, I think you'll find he is. The Kosovo war is now over. Blair has nailed it. It's an absolute triumph. The Queen says you are now, by some margin, the top statesman in the world. And then she switches the subject and says, so you're very good at this popularity thing, Mr. Blair. What would you do if you were me? And he says, what, if I were king? And she goes, yes. So he sets off, doesn't he, to start talking to his people and work out what should happen. Yeah, his closest aides are throwing out all these ideas, mainly about tightening the purse strings, really kind of stripping the monarchy back. But then we see Tony Blair having conversations at home, and there's a kind of differing views there towards the monarchy. Yeah, what we're seeing here is an imagining of what's going on in the minds of the kind of new Labour project. As you say, there are a number of the sort of key Blair aides of the day, Jonathan Powell, Angie Hunter, they're all sort of sitting around having a kind of brainstorming session on how can the monarchy... 
modernise. And then, yes, then we cut to the kitchen at Downing Street, and Cherie Blair is very much depicted as an ocean-going Republican, saying it's all nonsense, it's a thousand years of feudal rubbish, you might as well reform Stonehenge. I think it's safe to say Cherie Blair was never a dyed-in-the-wool monarchist, but I think she was more of a pragmatist than that. It's interesting that they start touching on things that have absolutely nothing to do with the monarchy and everything to do with the political system. Cherie Blair at that point starts complaining that members of the royal family aren't allowed to marry Roman Catholics. Well, that's not the Queen's call. Parliament legislated on that. So um, if she's this great legal expert, as she proclaims to be in this episode, where she says, I'm not a Queen's counsel, I should be called senior counsel. If she was their great lawyer, and she did have a fine legal mind, she'd be the first to know that it's actually down to Parliament to change a lot of these rules. And in fact, from memory, at the time, there were private members' bills in Parliament trying to overturn a lot of these rules on things like marrying Catholics, male primogeniture, all this stuff. And actually, it was the Blair government that kind of kicked them into the long grass because they saw that these would be a a sort of a distraction. So, yeah, interesting. It, It all is built up around this idea of modernizing a brilliant, dynamic political leader versus crusty, stodgy, dusty old monarchy that needs a good old kick up the backside. Surely it's fiction that Tony Blair's advisers were kind of pulling out all of these ideas to change the monarchy on the Queen's request. I did talk to people at the time. There were definitely moves by, shall we say, modernisers. I mean, within the New Labour movement, there was this very bright, talented, busy kind of group of young advisers. It was actually more coming from the sort of the junior middle ranks rather than Blair's uh, senior lieutenants. Let's not forget, I mean, they had much bigger things to be worrying about. I mean, you know, if you're Jonathan Powell, you're focusing on foreign affairs, not really going to be sitting around worrying about the catering budget on the Royal Train, which is what we saw there. But there were moves. There were definitely those arguing general trimming of royal pageantry. I think that's where we're heading. I've been looking at some of the ceremonial offices in the royal household, and they include a hereditary grand falconer. Dear Murray, what about him? Does the job really need to depend on birth, not merit? I think what we're suggesting is a purge of honorifics might be a useful concession and PR victory. I obviously need to give all this careful thought. Your Majesty. So we've just seen a rather frosty meeting between the Queen and Tony Blair where he runs through a list of ancient ceremonial roles that he either suggests should have alterations to or maybe should be got rid of altogether. And there's some quite interesting ones in the mix. Hereditary Grand Falconer, the Queen's Herb Strewer, Washer of the Sovereign's Hands and so on. Some of these roles do exist. Some of them don't or don't anymore. What's your take on this, Robert? Really, this is a sort of crunch point where, you know, old Britain and new Britain kind of come together and Blair is saying to the Queen, things have got to change around here. And he does start off with some big thoughts. He he talks about changing the rules on primogeniture and then he talks about changing the rules on Catholicism and the bar on members of the family marrying Roman Catholics. It sort of paints the idea that the Queen is sort of obstructing this and that Blair is sort of asking her to think about it when, in fact... 
This is down to government to change those sort of issues. Those are legislated for. They're governed by acts of parliament. He's the one who can change all that. And during the early years of the Blair administration, there were a number of attempts, several attempts to change the rules on both marriage to Catholics and primogeniture. I think Geoffrey Archer at one point brought one in. Uh, There was certainly one brought in by a Labour peer, and they were brought in in both the House of Commons and the House of Lords. And on each occasion, the government actually sort of pushed them to one side because they could just see that these were going to be very complicated issues that really only concerned a handful of people, and we've got more important things to do. Then, in this scene, then Blair gets down to the sort of the more obscure and arcane roles, as you say, Natasha, and and is sort of saying, why do we need 10 heralds in Parliament? Why do we need a gold stick and a silver stick? There was an actual discussion within Labour to try and trim events like the state opening of Parliament to lose one or two of these more ornate characters. I think at one point, Silver Stick, which is a title that goes with the colonel of the Household Cavalry Regiment, was actually removed from the procession in Parliament. But the idea that that Blair's gone there and said to the Queen, you've got to lose all these people, and then reeling off a list of very ancient offices that, frankly, they're not real jobs. No one gets paid to do them. In many cases, nobody actually does them. I mean, for example, he he talks about the Herbstrewer. The Herbstrewer is a lovely idea. It was actually a one-off created for the coronation of George IV, where he wanted someone to sprinkle herbs in his path to take away the bad smells from a leaky drain. But in the Crown, it would look as though there's this enormous government payroll with all these people doing these absolutely fantastically stupid jobs, and it's time to get rid of them. Well, if they did do those jobs and they were on salaries, then of course it would. But I think here they're being used to embellish the idea of a monarchy stuck very much in the past to slightly ridiculous traditions, and the bracing winds of modernisation are blowing hard. Yeah, I mean, for example, the gold stick in waiting at this year's state opening of Parliament was Princess Anne. So there's an example of someone taking on the ceremonial role, but it's not as if they're in sort of full paid employment. Yeah, <laughs> gold job. stick. Gold stick is, again, it's an honorary title that goes with being Colonel of, the, of either the Blues and Royals, which Princess Anne is, or Colonel of the Lifeguards. They alternate. They're all rooted in tradition. I mean, gold stick was originally the sovereign's number one bodyguard, and the gold stick was a symbol of their importance. So these things might sound or look slightly anachronistic, but they're all there for a reason. Blair, at one point in this conversation, says to the Queen, why do you need ten heralds in Parliament? Since medieval times, heralds were there to marshal royal processions. That's why they're there. Uh, Yeah, of course you could take them away. They're not being paid anything. They're they're not a cost on the state. They don't get in the way. They're a reminder of how our constitutional settlement came to be. But the Blairites thought, oh, that was a bit silly. Let's do away with it. The Queen as you can see, bristles. And I thought it was a rather nice cutaway when we see her sort of foot twitching. Yeah, she's uh, crossing it uncomfortably. She's really chair. not enjoying this conversation, is she? So um, I, I think now, thus far, it's all been about all hail the wonderful, brilliant Tony Blair. I think things might be about to sort of change a little. We'll be back with more after the break. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. They don't want to change, Tony. Like the Catholic Church. Let's not bring the church into this. They modernized, and the old guard's never forgiven them for it because they got rid of the Latin and the incense and the miracles and the mystery, and people stopped coming. This is different. Is Mr. Hawkins next, please. Yes. Swans. That's it. I'm the warden of the Swans. It says here your role is one of the oldest in the household. I am the Queen's Herbs Drawer. The Queen's Guide to the Suns. Yeoman of the Glass and China Pantry. And my responsibilities also include folding all 170 of the embroidered white linen napkins. You are clever. How on earth do you do that? Few have truly mastered the Dutch bonnet napkin fold. So what we have there is, having been told by Tony Blair that it's time to clear out a lot of these ancient appointments um, and medieval traditions. I think Blair called for a bonfire of sinecures. The Queen decides to just see what we're talking about, to meet all these people. And you have this sort of utterly implausible but rather sweet, it almost looks like a sort of um, audition room, doesn't it? All these people in sort of fancy dress turn up to meet the Queen so they can tell her what it is that they do. And, And you see the look on her face as she hears the warden of the swans and the yeoman of the glass and china pantry talking with love and enthusiasm about their jobs and you can see the sort of bubble in her head going oh yes this is all wonderful these people love what they do and it's all slightly taking the mickey but at the same time reminding us of all the sort of rich panoply of royal traditions i was rather struck where there was a chap there saying he's the yeoman of the glass and china pantry and he's made to look you know what a ridiculous title what a ridiculous job and and he shows the queen how he can fold a napkin he says few have mastered the dutch bonnet napkin fold well um actually there really is a yeoman of the glass and china pantry i've interviewed him several times a very key person at Buckingham Palace because he actually is in charge of all the glass and all the china. And we're talking priceless glass, priceless china. I mean, in some countries, you'd have whole teams of curators looking after this stuff. He might be called Yeoman of the Glass and China Pantry. It might sound like something out of a Gilbert and Sullivan opera, but actually, it's a very real job. I remember him telling me he hasn't just mastered the Dutch bonnet fold. He's actually trained, and he trains his staff to do six different napkin folds, not just the Dutch bonnet. (laughs) These people do exist in various shapes or forms. Some are totally honorary, but I think the crown's building up this again, as I've said many times through this episode, it's building up this perception of old versus new, ancient, modern, something's got to give. Uh, how did you find uh, the, some of these characters, Natasha? Were you surprised that there really is someone who's in charge of the Queen's Swans? Absolutely. I mean, seeing all those outfits, it's the kind of thing you imagine, you know, your absolutely enthusiastic royal tourist going into a gift shop. This is the kind of stuff they want to see, all of these outfits and all of these traditions. But yes, the fact that some of these positions do exist, it really was a surprise. They said the current are now King's Guide to the Sands. When they first said it, I thought it was Guide to the Suns. You know, I was thinking, what an 
there's this. But no, as you say, it's a real position currently held by a man called Michael Wilson. He helps people cross the sands in Morecambe Bay um, in northwest England. And he recently told local radio that the job also includes helping naturists who like to cross the bay naked. So he really, <laughs> you know, it's a real position and a challenging one. And I was surprised to see as well, they actually kind of minimised the warden of the swans because we see it here as just one role. But I read that uh, we actually, we have a warden of the swans and also a marker of the swans and they are two different positions and now they're all kind of involved with rounding up the swans, um, mainly on the Thames. I mean, it's a process called swan upping. Traditionally, it was, they would kind of check them, check if they were healthy and then one would be taken for the royal family to eat in a banquet. But that's now frowned upon and it's now just a count and a health check. Yeah, and they're real day jobs. Uh, These are all people who work on the River Thames. They're bargemen, they run river boats. I think in this sort of day and age when we are so concerned about, you know, wildlife protection, the environment, actually what they're doing, they might do it wearing very ancient uniforms and they might have funny titles, but really there's no difference between them and the RSPCA. I mean, what they're doing is actually a perfectly healthy, natural force for good on the River Thames. Having said all that, I do think this episode is quite good publicity for a lot of the quirks and peculiarities of monarchy, which I don't think anyone seriously wants us to get rid of. But clearly the royal family, by the looks of it, are about to get quite worried. It might be sensible to make one or two concessions, leave us less open to charges of elitism and grandiosity. I just don't feel there's anything wrong with running the monarchy on more rational and democratic lines. But monarchy isn't rational or democratic, or logical, or fair. Haven't we all learned that by now? People don't want to come to a royal palace and get what they could have at home. They want the magic and the mystery, and the arcane, and the eccentric, and the symbolic, and the transcendent. Here, here. There we have the royal family ostensibly tut-tutting and moaning about Blairite proposals to modernise the state opening of Parliament. It's a bit of a sort of history lesson for for viewers, reminding them how state opening works, how Black Rod knocks three times on the door of Parliament. You've got Prince Philip reminding everybody that the last king to overstep the mark in Parliament, Charles I, had his head chopped off. But at the end of it, the Queen makes a point that actually I don't think any of the royal family needed reminding, but she makes it here, which is to say that when people enter the royal world, when they come to the palace for an investiture or whatever it is, they like all these traditions. They like the colour and the spectacle and the arcane, even if it is irrational. She says monarchy is irrational. It's not logical. I mean, that I've always thought that's one of its, its great strengths. And it is very true. People love that when they come to the palace. I don't know whether you've been to an investiture or a garden party, Natasha, but I always love the fact that the garden party, there's this wonderful moment when the, the yeomen of the guard march in in their full Tudor kit and start lining up to make lines through the crowd. And people just think this is glorious. They don't turn around and go, what are these silly old men doing in these silly old uniforms? They think this is part of what makes monarchy special. There's a good line there when the Queen says people want the transcendent. They want to be taken out of their lives and transported into another world. And I I think that does hit on a sort of subliminal appeal of monarchy to a lot of people. Yeah, it's the magic and the mystery, she says, and I think that's totally Mm. accurate. And she's not going to get rid of it, is she? No. (laughs) (laughs) Your Majesty. Prime Minister. My office sent some suggestions ahead of the state opening of Parliament. I was wondering if you had a chance to look at them. We have now conducted a thorough review of all the offices in my household, and what we discovered was not indefensible extravagance or luxury, or a collection of empty Ruritanian titles, but an extraordinary array of precious expertise. 
Tradition is our strength. Modernity is not always the answer. So we've just seen another private meeting between Tony Blair and the Queen. And I think it's always good to be a reminder that there's never any permanent record of these kinds of meetings. So fiction is always in play with these scenes. Um, But Tony Blair is telling the Queen that George Bush has just been elected. Um, And I think he comes across as quite arrogant in this scene because he's kind of talking to the Queen about how, because he's the senior partner, he's hoping that he can influence President Bush. And the Queen kind of responds with an awkward little hmm, which I think is quite funny because in their relationship, clearly the Queen is the senior partner. And then she kind of ends the meeting and Tony Blair asks, you know, has she had a chance to reflect on his suggestions for the state opening of Parliament? And they sit back down. And then I think the Queen, it's her opportunity to try and influence Tony Blair. And she speaks very powerfully and confidently about how she should not find any indefensible extravagance in the royal household, um, but precious expertise, uh, talking about how tradition is the strength. Modernity is not always the answer, but sometimes antiquity is too. Yes, I think what the scriptwriters have possibly overlooked is the fact at the start of the scene, as you say, it's uh, the Queen sees it on the TV and then Blair comes in to talk about it's out with the Clintons, in comes President George Bush. I think a point the Queen really would have made at their real audience, here we hear that, you know, Tony Blair's never met George Bush. That's not true, actually. They met as teenagers. I think they were on a school exchange together. But the Queen already knows George Bush because she's quite friendly with his parents. George Bush Sr. and Barbara Bush came to the palace on a state visit. The Queen went on a state visit to Washington. I interviewed George Bush for my biography of the Queen, Queen of Our Times. I had a long chat with him. He was telling me about how he first met the Queen in 1991 when she came to Washington to meet his parents. And as he put it, he was at the time a slightly wayward son. And he'd even had a pair of cowboy boots commissioned with God Save the Queen engraved down the side of them. And his mother said, you are not to wear those in front of the Queen. And he said, I sure am. And he did. And the Queen was very taken with them. So I think that's a sort of, I think the Queen would have certainly been swapping that sort of story with Tony Blair at that particular moment as they look forward to which way the transatlantic relationship is going to go. But then, as you say, on the way out, the Queen, it's a sort of, oh, and by the way, I've listened to all that you said about modernising and I'm not going to do any of it, is effectively what she's saying. And she stresses again this point that she talks about the immutable of monarchy, I think it's a sort of readjusting of this constant tension we've had throughout this episode. You've got the modernizers, you've got the traditionalists, the Blairite, the moderniser, the great King Tony. It's being brought down a peg or two here, and the Queen is just sort of saying, well, you know, actually some things aren't going to change. Oh, Robert. It might be best if I personally were to move on. At crucial moments, the palace has failed to read the public mood, and much of the blame rests with me. Surely not. My problem is I'm an old stick. I'd rather not change anything at all. But you can make alterations without tearing down the building. Sometimes it's helpful to offer a scalp. This way, everyone benefits. Every minute has been an honour, man. Well, that's rather a touching scene there as the Queen's private secretary, Sir Robert Fellows, comes in to say 
it's time for me to move on. And the Queen says she'd be lost without him. I mean, it's true. It's around about now that he did um, move on. I mean, private secretaries would do somewhere between five and 10 years uh, in office and move on. It wasn't such a surprise at the time, but the Queen was extremely fond of Robert Fellows. He had steered her and the monarchy through really the darkest days of the reign. It was always difficult for him because his wife was... Diana, Princess of Wales's sister, which put him in a tricky position from time to time. I always found him a very decent man, very uh, wise. He would always, as we see there, him sort of taking the rap for things that go wrong. And, you know, I mean, I remember once when the Queen was delivering a speech in Poland and she'd missed out a key page of the speech and we were all scratching our heads and I remember asking him afterwards and he just said, oh, blame me, blame me, it's all my fault, I should have checked. He was always one to take the rap and she was very fond of him and at his leaving do, when he finally did leave, the Queen came out with a great line, she was there and she made a short speech and she said, Robert is the only one of my private secretaries whom I have held in my arms because his father ran the Sandringham estate and the Queen was present at his christening as a little boy and did indeed hold him in her arms as a baby. Wow. So there's real poignancy. He's, I think, a very key player in the, in the royal story, Robert Fellows, and the way in which he takes it on the chin, wishes his successor all the best, I think is entirely in, in keeping with the character of the man. Do you think that his resignation had anything to do with as they kind of describe it here, sending a signal to the public that the monarchy is changing, or is that just imagination? It might have been at the back of his mind. I mean, I think there's possibly a slight sense that, you know, it is, it's just it's just time to move on. Some of the uh, private secretaries stayed a very long time. I mean, one of the earlier ones, Michael Adeen, was in post for almost 20 years, I think, whereas arguably the Queen's favourite private secretary, Martin Charteris, who she loved dearly, he only did five years. So the thing they all have in common, all her private secretaries through her reign, were that they were all, without exception, they were very wise and they did know when to move, when to just sort of gently adjust the tiller. I think she was well served by them all. And as this little vignette shows, there was a real fondness for Robert Fellows, and she would miss him. One last thing you might be interested to know. The Prime Minister has chosen to address the Women's Institute. I wouldn't have said they were his sort of crowd. Run-in with the Women's Institute was surely not what the Prime Minister had in mind as he made his return to the political fray. He can charm America, indeed the whole world, but comes up short with the Women's Institute. So we've just got to the end of Ruritania and we're back at the Women's Institute and Tony Blair giving a speech, but it doesn't go down quite as well as the Queen's did that we saw earlier in the episode. Um, he starts to breach into politics. It's all about being radical. He says a mission to change the soul of this country. And then some very angry, frowning faces start standing up and slowly clapping over his voice, he has to stop the speech. And this really did happen, didn't it, Robert? It was an extraordinary moment. I remember it very well. I wasn't actually in the room. It was a sort of Emperor's New Clothes moment. We just heard the Queen there telling Tony Blair he kind of walks on water. And there was that sort of sense that he could do no wrong. And he really hadn't put a foot wrong. And then he did in the summer of 2000 was invited to attend the National Conference of the Women's Institute. And it was a really big event. I mean, it was held in Wembley Arena. So, I mean, it was thousands of people there. And he just hit the wrong note. He had been told in advance, look, we really don't talk politics. But I suppose partly, whether it was arrogance or 
laziness or whatever. He just sort of went into sort of classic kind of Blairite modernizer mode and started talking about the need for change and all this sort of thing. And it wasn't what they wanted to hear. And for that audience, who were incredibly sort of well-mannered, they weren't political. They genuinely weren't. This wasn't a, some sort of Tory ambush. They just felt that you'd come to the wrong place, mate, if you want to give that sort of speech. So they did give him a slow hand clap. And it was one of the few moments at that point that the rather beleaguered Tory leader, William Hague, who really hadn't had very much to cheer about for three years, really did make hay of that in Parliament. And Blair, to his credit, you know, we see at the end there, he kind of takes it on the chin. The Queen sort of says, you know, you can charm America, you can charm the world, but you can't get it right with the WI. And then it's a sort of resetting of the dial, you know, and the, the, the episode ends as they then resume talking about the nuts and bolts of day-to-day affairs. So it's sort of come full circle. We've begun with a very worried Queen who thinks she's lost it. The monarchy just can't keep up. And like the fable of the hare and the tortoise, it's sort of come back at the end with everything as it was um, originally. Yeah, the Queen watches on the speech with a flicker of a smile as she's sipping a cup of tea. And then the scene ends out with Tony Blair talking about the EU, but his voice kind of fades into the background as the Queen's left looking fairly content. And yeah, as you say, it's that shifting of the dial, the move away. The Queen, we really get the sense that she's back on the front foot. She's feeling confident now, whereas Tony Blair's influence is kind of ebbing away. Right at the start of this series, we see the Queen having meetings with Tony Blair. And we did previously talk about what kind of relationship she had with him. But clearly in this episode, it's looking very, very strained. And there has been some reporting that perhaps Tony Blair was one of the Queen's least favourite prime ministers. Is there any truth to that? It's a great parlour game. You know, who are the Queen's favourite? Who are her least favourite prime ministers? She was much more practical than that. I think she admired many things about Tony Blair and there was definitely an appreciation within the palace that this is a politician with a huge electoral mandate and the Commons is in charge. We're not. So that was accepted. I think actually she did like the fact that here was a Prime Minister, the first Prime Minister in a very long time, for example, with a young family. Those were the things that she liked. Yes, there were strains. What the series doesn't touch on was one bit of modernising that went way too far when Blair decided to abolish the post of Lord Chancellor. One of the most ancient positions in the land goes back to medieval times. The Lord Chancellor has all sorts of roles within the monarchy as well as, well as within the judiciary, as well as within Parliament. Blair hadn't actually bothered to consult the Queen about this and that was a, that was a real stumbling block. The palace fought back on that and in the end, Blair decided to unabolish the Lord Chancellor because um, he was getting it in the neck from the palace. Tradition triumphs again. Yeah, but in terms of, you know, favourite, least favourite, I've always thought that her least favourite Prime Minister, if one could pinpoint one, I would say it was probably actually Edward Heath, who's the Prime Minister who tried to drive a wedge between the Queen and her Commonwealth, and she really wasn't very happy about that. But I think overall, this episode has caught the slightly hubristic sense of new Labour. It was always destined to fall in the end. You couldn't maintain, a political movement can't maintain that sort of pop star popularity. Whereas a wise old monarch knows that you're in it for the long game. Mm. Tony Blair's popularity with the Queen may have been a little bit lukewarm, but one thing we did come across researching this episode is that he really was very popular in Kosovo. Here in this episode, we see him really being instrumental in getting NATO troops on the ground and really turning the situation around. Um, And he continued to work in this area. And he was viewed as being so important, powerful, 
powerful, influential in Kosovo that lots of people decided to name their children, not just Tony, but Tony Blair as as one word. We've got it written here, T-O-N-I-B-L-E-R. <laughs> so Tony of, Blair. Yeah, Tony Blair. <laughs> so there's lots of 25-year-olds walking around Kosovo right now. It's uh, the full name, Tony Blair. It was uh, fascinating. I remember at the time watching Blair on a sort of victory walkabout going through Pristina, the capital of Kosovo. I mean, it was, it was like watching a sort of homecoming hero. As we may see in later episodes, I don't know because I haven't seen them yet, but I suspect this could be laying the groundwork for, again, we talk about hubris, but I mean, Kosovo went so well. It was this extraordinary NATO Blair-led victory without a single Allied soldier being killed. And it, I think it did lead to a certain cockiness so that when the war in Iraq came along, and that was only four years later, Blair thought, oh, well, I know how to do this sort of thing. And of course, that was going to be a very different conflict. So we might see how that pans out later. But I suspect what this episode is doing is, is definitely, as well as the story about Blair, Queen, modernization and, and, and tradition, I think it's also setting Blair up as a as someone who's possibly riding for a fall. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of The Crown, Fact or Fiction. Once again, we'd like to thank you for your kind comments, your messages. Feel free to leave comments and do please give us a five-star rating and a follow. And finally, um, if you'd like to send us a WhatsApp message, do take a look in the show notes for our number. But for now, thanks for listening to The Crown, Fact or Fiction. Goodbye. Goodbye. Our hit series, Everything I Know About Me, is back for a brand new season. And this time, our guest needs no introduction. Of course you find me, Darren! But here's one anyway. Hi, I'm Gemma Collins, and this is Everything I Know About Me. If you think you know all about Gemma Collins, think again. Because this is the GC as you've never heard her before. It's been exhausting. Unashamed. And I was really heartbroken because I was pregnant and he was having an affair. Unfiltered. I have had an operation as well years ago. I have a designer vagina. Yeah, baby. I don't have camel toe. Unbelievable. And then they advised me, you need to have a termination. And, uh, yeah... I remember that being really stressful. Everything I know about me with Gemma Collins is out this Thursday wherever you get your podcasts.